This episode details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This is the last chapter of the series, The Day the Music Died, where I share stories of the tragic endings of musical icons. So far, we have covered stories about a variety of musical talents, including R&B, rock, and rap stars. This story will describe the tale of a beautiful young woman who was talented beyond measure and was a rising star in the world of Tejano music. She was just crossing over onto the pop charts when her life was tragically cut down before she could reach her prime. Join me for today's episode as I detail the life and death of the Queen of Tejano music. Selena Quintanilla was born on April 16, 1971, in Lake Jackson, Texas, to Abraham Quintanilla Jr. and Marcela Zamora. Abraham and Marcela were married in 1963. Abraham was of Mexican-American descent, and Marcela was half Mexican-American and half Cherokee. They moved to the Corpus Christi area of Texas and began a family. They had three children, a son, Abraham III, and two daughters, Suzette and Selena. Selena was their youngest child. Abraham took a job at Dow Chemical to provide for his family. But Abraham's first love had always been music. He loved to sing as a youngster and was enamored of doo-wop and rock music, learning to perform popular songs of the 1950s by groups like the Four Aces and the Mills Brothers. He joined a local group in 1957 called the Dinos, or Los Dinos, as the Mexican locals dubbed them. They performed at parties and high school dances around Corpus Christi and recorded a single in 1959 that sold 150,000 copies and was played on local radio stations. They began to get booked at venues across Texas, but when some club owners discovered that they were of Mexican descent, they encountered racism, with some places unwilling to allow them to play. They were also rejected at motels and other establishments in mostly white neighborhoods. Soon after, in 1961, Abraham was drafted into the Army, which ended his musical career. But still loving to play and sing, he taught his son to play guitar, and they would often practice songs together. Selena loved to listen to the guitars and sing along. By the time she was six years old, Abraham recognized that Selena was musically gifted. She could sing in perfect pitch. Abraham was once again excited about forming a new band, this time a family band. Abraham had also wanted to own his own restaurant. Now he saw how he could meld his two loves together. In 1980, he opened a Tex-Mex restaurant in Lake Jackson, Texas. He built a small stage in the dining room where his family could perform with his son who was nicknamed A.B. on guitar, and Selena as the lead singer. His oldest daughter, Suzette, was drafted as the drummer. She was not thrilled with this role, finding it embarrassing that her school friends, she was now a teen, would come into the restaurant and see her banging away on the drums. She didn't think that girls should play the drums, and Abraham named the band Selena y los Dinos. Things were going well at first, the restaurant was busy and the band was beginning to learn to really play. Selena was a natural. For a little girl, she had a powerful voice and people flocked to the restaurant to see her perform. But the oil glut caused many to lose their jobs beginning in the early 1980s and Texas was hit hard by the recession. By 1982, Abraham was forced to close the restaurant and having quit his job at Dow Chemical, the family lost everything they had worked for. 
they had to declare bankruptcy and were evicted from their home. Seeing no other choice, Abraham decided they needed to work full-time on the band and pushed hard to promote it. They played everywhere they could make a few bucks, at weddings, at fairs, and even on street corners where they would pass a hat in hopes of making a few dollars. Abraham purchased a used van and packed up the family to find more venues and bigger audiences to play to. As they were constantly on the road, Selena was pulled out of school in the eighth grade. She continued her high school education through correspondence courses, completing her high school diploma at the age of 17 without the benefit of a teacher or tutor. She was even accepted into Louisiana State University, but by that time, she and the band were award-winning musical artists. Abraham soon decided that the band should perform Tejano music. He remembered how hard it was to be accepted as a pop group when he was a young man, and knew that they would have an easier time being accepted performing traditional Mexican songs. Tejano music, a mixture of traditional Mexican folk music, polkas, and country-western music sung in Spanish with English mixed in, sometimes called Spanglish, was very popular in Texas and throughout the Southwest. They were able to book venues from California to Florida, with Selena, the cute little girl with the big voice, as its main draw. Selena learned to sing songs in Spanish phonetically. She did not speak any Spanish and had to memorize the songs. Her brother, A.B., began to write original songs and arrange the music for the band as well. In 1984, when Selena was 13 years old, Selena y los Dinos recorded their first LP, simply titled Selena y los Dinos. In 1985, to promote the album, Selena appeared on a popular Spanish-language talk show, The Johnny Canales Show. Selena learned to speak enough Spanish to be interviewed on Latino television and radio shows. She became featured regularly on The Johnny Canales Show, among other programs, as their popularity increased. When she was 15, the band had their first single titled Dame Un Beso, or Kiss Me, an original song written by A.B. A.B. also began to produce and arrange new music, taking Tejano music in a fresher, newer direction. Tejano audiences had previously been older, more traditional Mexican audiences, but A.B. began to introduce sounds that resonated with younger audiences. By the mid-1980s, the band began to fuse the traditional Tejano sound with R&B, Colombian cumbia rhythms, and pop music to reach a wider and younger audience. They added a keyboardist, Ricky Vela. Another reason the band stood out was that Tejano music had long been traditionally male-dominated. It was rare that a female singer was featured, and almost non-existent that a female would front a Tejano group. But Selena had something special that kept the audiences flocking to see her. She was a talented singer, could dance, and really put on a fun show for the fans. And people truly loved Selena. She came across as warm and fun and carefree. She went out of her way to connect with her fans and seemed to love to perform for them. The band, especially A.B., was receiving recognition for the quality and creativity of the musical arrangements. A.B. was a talented songwriter and musician. The band released five more LPs by 1988. In 1987, Selena won the Female Vocalist of the Year at the Tejano Music Awards for the very first time. It was a category she would win for the next nine consecutive years. A.B. would be nominated for the first time in 1988 for the Tejano Songwriter of the Year. By the early 90s, Selena was called the Queen of Tejano Music. Selena and the band were garnering awards and accolades by the dozens, as well as selling out venues and doing brisk record sales. 
Big labels were starting to take notice of their crossover appeal to younger and more American audiences. Mostly Latino, but their music was being played in American dance clubs frequented by mixed audiences. The newly formed Capital EMI label saw the potential of Latino music audiences and opened EMI Latin Records. They were looking for artists to sign when they saw Selena perform at the 1989 Tejano Music Awards. Sony Music Latin was also there. They both approached Abraham with an offer to sign Selena and the band. While Sony had deeper pockets and offered more money, Abraham chose to sign with Capital EMI. EMI was offering to produce a crossover album for Selena, which would introduce her to American pop audiences, and Abraham also shrewdly realized that Selena would be EMI's only Tejano artist on the label. Sony already had several, and he saw more potential for her to be a standout artist on the label. Selena was always interested in fashion and began to apply her own individual style to the outfits she wore on stage. She would design and sew her own clothes, or modify clothes she purchased to make them one of a kind. She had grown into a beauty and wore outfits that would accentuate her curves. She wore form-fitting bottoms and bustier tops that had become popular with young female performers like Madonna. Selena, however, had been raised in a very conservative religious family. Her father had been a Jehovah's Witness since he was a teen and expected his children and his band to behave morally and portray a wholesome image. He was not happy with his daughter wearing what he called a bra on stage. Selena explained to him that it was simply the new fashion, and as she would begin to do more, defied her father's strict control over her life. Selena was known for her fashion sense and her beauty, as well as her musical talent, and it translated into more fans and more record sales. In 1989, when Selena was 18 years old, Coca-Cola asked her to be their spokesperson in Texas. The jingle for the first two commercials were composed by her brother A.B. and their new guitarist, Chris Perez. Perez was from San Antonio and had been a rock guitarist preferring to play in metal bands, but was recruited by A.B. and quickly persuaded to join the band after he saw the level of musicianship he would be joining. He was impressed by A.B.'s talents as a songwriter and musical abilities, as well as by Selena. Only a few months after Chris joined the band, he and Selena discovered that they had romantic feelings for each other. They hid the relationship, however, knowing that Abraham would not approve. In 1990, Selena released her second studio album, titled Ven Conmigo. One of the tracks was an updated Mexican cumbia number that quickly became popular and was one of Selena's biggest-selling singles. Its popularity grew in Mexico as well as in the States, and the album was certified platinum. A woman named Yolanda Saldivar approached Abraham, asking him if she could start a Selena fan club after seeing her perform in concert. At first, he declined the offer, but she was persistent, and he finally relented. Yolanda Saldivar became Selena's fan club president in 1991. Yolanda was a registered nurse, middle-aged, short, and plain. She was devoted to Selena and handled her fan mail and sent out photos and premiums to her paid fan club members. She also organized appearances and autograph signings. She lived in San Antonio, and whenever Selena and the band were in town, as they often were, Yolanda was by her side. She became a trusted assistant, and Selena believed a good friend. Selena took her on trips with her after she made her personal assistant. Later that year, Abraham learned of the relationship between Chris and Selena and was furious. He insulted Chris and accused him of trying to use Selena for her money and her fame. An argument between Selena and her father ensued, 
and Abraham threatened to break up the band if Chris did not leave immediately. Chris relented and was fired from the band. Selena and Chris continued to see each other secretly. They spent the day together on April 1, 1992, in Corpus Christi at the beach, and Chris left her that evening to stay overnight at a nearby hotel before heading back home to San Antonio. That night, Selena showed up at his hotel and told him that the only way they could be together was to elope. Chris and Selena were married the next morning in a courthouse in Corpus Christi. Within hours, the media reported the marriage. Selena's family heard and tried to find her. Abraham did not want to see her. They moved together to an apartment in Corpus Christi. Before too long, Abraham sought the couple out. He apologized for having backed them into a corner and forcing them to marry in secret. He realized that Chris truly loved her and would take care of her, with or without money and fame. He welcomed him into the family and back into the band. Selena was thrilled. Even though she had success and fame and fortune, Selena was a down-to-earth girl who always wanted to have a husband and a family. Now she really had everything she'd ever dreamed of, and they began to talk about starting a family as soon as they could take a break from touring. But they couldn't do so immediately. Selena's third studio album was released in May 1992, one month after her elopement. The album, Enter a Mi Mundo, was critically acclaimed as her breakthrough album, peaking at number one on Billboard's U.S. Mexican Albums chart for 19 consecutive weeks. It went six times platinum. It also became the most successful Tejano album by a female artist ever. Her next album, Live, was recorded during a free concert at the Memorial Coliseum in Corpus Christi on February 7, 1993. It won the Grammy Award for the Best Mexican-American Album at the 36th Annual Grammy Awards. It also won Album of the Year at the 1994 Tejano Music Awards. In 1994, she appeared in two episodes in a Spanish-language soap opera, or telenovela, starring Eric Estrada. You may remember him from the television show Chips, in which he played Frank Poncherello from 1977 to 1983. Yes, that's what happened to that guy. She would also play a small part in the 1995 movie Don Juan DeMarco, acting in a scene with Johnny Depp. In one of the soap opera scenes, she was supposed to kiss her co-star, but she declined to do so. She was married, she explained, and it wouldn't be right. Also in 1994, Selena began a line of clothing based on her own designs and opened two boutiques called Selena Etc. in Corpus Christi and San Antonio. Besides selling clothing, both boutiques also had in-house beauty salons. There were plans to open more boutiques in both Monterey, Mexico and Puerto Rico. Impressed by the way Yolanda was managing the fan club, she was now put in charge of overseeing the boutique operations. Hispanic Business Magazine reported that Selena earned over $5 million from the boutiques, and along with Selena, Yolanda managed the finances as well as hiring and training staff. Selena's fourth studio album, Amor Prohibido, broke all previous records for a Latin recording. It earned four number one singles, sold over 2 million copies in the U.S. alone, received a Grammy nomination, and won Album of the Year at the Tejano Music Awards in 1994. Critics said that Selena almost single-handedly changed the face and sound of Tejano music, reaching a broader audience and being more profitable than ever before. EMI now believed she had reached and exceeded all goals they had set for her in the Spanish-speaking market, and now wanted to promote her as an English-language American solo pop artist. She began work on her crossover album in 1995. 
In one story that shows Selena's down-to-earth nature, Selena decided that she wanted to cook a big Mexican feast for her producers and crew at the recording studio. Selena loved to cook, and especially to feed family and friends. While she was cooking, another band was also working at the studio that day. They smelled the food from down the hall. Winona Judd stuck her head in the kitchen, and believing Selena must be the caterer, asked her if it would be possible for her to cook a meal for her band as well. Rather than being insulted, Selena was thrilled with meeting the country music singer, as she was a fan of her music. She found her mistake hilarious and laughed it off. In 1994, all of Selena's business ventures were highly profitable. Besides record sales, she was selling out large concert venues and her clothing line and boutiques were a success. But it was being recorded by boutique employees that Yolanda was becoming more difficult to work for and there was a high turnover in the boutique staff as many left rather than deal with her. It seemed as if power had gone to her head and Yolanda was rude with staff and management alike, often firing people whom she disliked. Selena heard complaints about her, but dismissed it as the typical, I don't like my boss complaints. She thought of Yolanda as a friend and had difficulty believing the stories she heard about her. When the staff couldn't get Selena to listen to their complaints, they then approached Abraham with their concerns. He took them seriously and told Selena to be careful and that Saldivar might not be as trustworthy as she thought. Selena, believing her dad to be too cautious and judgmental, told them not to worry. She thought he was just being negative as usual and making too much of things. Yolanda had even gifted Selena a ring that she treasured. Selena loved to collect decorative enamel eggs in the Fabergé style. Knowing this, Yolanda had a ring made for her. It was gold, with a white gold egg set at the top of it. Fifty-two tiny diamonds were embedded in the egg, and the initial S was inscribed on the band. Selena loved the gift and wore it always. What she didn't know was that all of the boutique employees had pooled their money for the gift and had given it to Yolanda to purchase it. But Yolanda told Selena the gift was from her. It was also later discovered that Yolanda had pocketed the money the employees had given her and used Selena's own American Express card to purchase the $3,000 ring. In January 1995, Abraham began receiving complaints from fan club members who said that they had paid for their memberships but had not received the items that were promised. He began to investigate these claims and soon discovered that Yolanda had embezzled more than $30,000 in forged checks from both the fan club and the boutiques. On March 9th, he called a meeting. In the presence of Selena and her sister Suzette, Abraham confronted Saldivar with the missing funds. He told her unless she could provide evidence to prove otherwise, he would involve the police and file theft charges against her. Yolanda didn't have any answers. She denied knowing anything about missing money, but they didn't believe her. Abraham wanted to ban Yolanda from having any contact with Selena, but Selena didn't want to completely dissolve ties to her yet. While she was shocked and hurt when confronted with the evidence that Yolanda had been stealing from her, she had made her an important person in the running of the boutiques, and Yolanda was in charge of the newest boutique that was set to open in Mexico. Selena was also concerned because Yolanda had important business documents and tax records that she would need to get back from her. Yolanda promised to get the documents to Selena and also to bring proof that the missing money was all a mistake. Two days after the meeting, Yolanda purchased a gun after undergoing a background check. She then left to Monterey, Mexico to see to some of the details about the new boutique. 
While she was gone, Selena talked to some of the boutique employees and found that many of them had complaints about her behavior and also that they believed that she might be stealing from the stores. Angry now, she confided in her husband what she'd learned. She didn't want to involve her father, but Chris also advised her to fire Yolanda immediately. Selena, however, was still worried about all the paperwork Yolanda still hadn't turned over to her. While she was now also ready to cut ties with Yolanda, she wanted to wait until after she got the needed documents. On March 15th, Selena met with Yolanda at a restaurant outside of Corpus Christi. Yolanda wouldn't come to the boutique, she said, because she had been receiving threatening phone calls. Yolanda turned over most of the paperwork and tried to make Selena feel sorry for her. She said that she felt she should resign. Realizing that some important documents were still missing, Selena, thinking fast, said, No, no, don't quit. We still need you for the Mexico boutique. Not really meaning it, but wanting to keep her from disappearing before she could retrieve the rest of the papers. Once she said that, Selena saw Yolanda's demeanor change. She was now in a happy mood, acting like they were best friends again. Then Yolanda told her she wanted to show her something. She then reached into her purse and pulled out the gun. She told her she had bought it for protection. Selena suggested that she should take it back, as it could be dangerous. Yolanda did take the gun back to the store that day, only to return to the store on March 26th and purchase it again. On Thursday, March 30th, Yolanda called to say that she was staying at the Days Inn Motel in Corpus Christi and that she had the missing paperwork that Selena needed. Chris and Selena drove over to the motel that evening. Selena asked Chris to stay in the truck while she retrieved the paperwork. After a few minutes, when Selena hadn't returned, Chris went to the room to check on her. The door was open, and he saw Yolanda sitting on the bed crying. Selena was standing up, facing her, and also looked upset. He asked if everything was okay. Selena said it was, and together they walked back to the truck and left the motel. On the way home, Selena told him that Yolanda had been telling her that she had been raped while she was in Mexico the previous week. Selena had offered to take her to the hospital, but Yolanda declined. Selena felt it was probably another lie used to try and manipulate her. Selena also realized that the bank statements she'd been promised were still missing from the folder of papers Yolanda had given her. Chris told her to forget about it. Yolanda called her home that night, saying that she had found more papers and wanted Selena to come back to the motel alone. No, she told her, it's too late. We'll come back tomorrow. Early the next morning, Friday, March 31st, Selena got up early as she usually did. Chris did not know it, but Selena left the house early because Yolanda had requested that she take her to the doctor to be checked out that morning. Selena picked her up, taking her to the doctor's regional hospital, where she was examined. Doctors found no evidence for the rape that Yolanda had reported. Selena, angry at being lied to once again, drove her back to the Days Inn Motel. It was just after 11 a.m. Selena accompanied her to the room to get the documents she was promised. It seemed that once there, an argument ensued. Selena would have been very angry by this point, having been subjected to runarounds, lies, and manipulations by Yolanda. Yolanda later testified that she had demanded Selena give her back the ring that she had gifted to her. While she was pulling off the ring, Yolanda reached for the gun she had hidden in her purse. At about 11.45 a.m., a motel employee saw a young woman running fast out of room 158. He saw a shorter, older woman also leave the same room with what looked like a gun pointing out in front of her. 
The young woman was, of course, Selena. She had been shot once as she fled the room and hit in the lower right shoulder, severing a major artery. Even so, Selena was able to run over 130 yards and around the front building to the lobby, where she collapsed on the lobby floor. She begged the staff to lock the front door, afraid she was being followed. She was also able to tell them what room she had come from and the name of the shooter. Yolanda, she said before she lost consciousness. The ring was still clutched in her hand. Motel employees later testified that they had witnessed Yolanda Saldivar follow after Selena before losing sight of her and calling out bitch when she couldn't find her. She then ran to her pickup truck in the parking lot and drove off. She was circling the motel. It seemed she was still looking for Selena. Motel staff had called 911 for the bleeding Selena, and the first officer on the scene cut off the truck in the parking lot. Yolanda was now blocked in. She pulled into a spot in the parking lot and placed the handgun to her head. Selena was quickly taken by ambulance and rushed into surgery. After 50 minutes, doctors realized that the damage was too great to her pierced artery for any life-saving measures. She was pronounced dead from blood loss and cardiac arrest at 1.05 p.m. She was 23 years old. By 1 p.m., the Days Inn was surrounded. Besides dozens of police cruisers surrounding the parking lot, the SWAT team was also called in. Yolanda had now been locked in her truck for over an hour with the gun pointed at her head. The streets for several blocks around the motel were cordoned off. The public had heard of the shooting and the unfolding drama at the Days Inn and were coming from miles around to find out what was happening. A cell phone was run out to the truck and a police negotiator was working on getting her to put the gun down and come out of the truck. Yolanda was alternately crying, threatening suicide, and lashing out angry at police, Selena, her family, and anyone else she thought had ever wronged her. The negotiator, realizing how unstable she was, tried to get word out to radio stations to not broadcast the fact that Selena had died. He was afraid if she knew that there would be nothing to stop her from either committing suicide or trying to shoot her way out of her situation, possibly endangering the lives of officers or the public. But before they could reach everyone, she heard the reports on the radio in her truck. She began to wail, saying she couldn't go to jail because they'll kill me. Yolanda Saldivar had just become the most hated person in Texas. Finally, at around 9.30 p.m., the negotiator got Yolanda to agree to give herself up. As the SWAT team moved in and took her into custody, the crowds from down the block began to cheer. Selena's family was informed that Selena had been hurt and was in surgery. By the time they arrived, she was gone. They were stunned and stayed in a state of shock for some time. Nobody could believe that their daughter, their sister, their wife, their friend, so beautiful, so vibrant, could be gone so quickly. The fans also began vigils that would last long into the night and into the days to follow. The area around the motel was ground zero with weeping fans bringing flowers, letters, and playing her songs. It was a place to gather with others who loved her and were feeling a sense of loss as well. Meanwhile, Yolanda Saldivar was being interviewed at police headquarters in Corpus Christi. She declined to have an attorney present. While earlier that day, she told the police negotiator that the shooting was an accident she said she'd brought the gun to kill herself and it had accidentally went off and shot Selena, 
She now calmly confessed to having shot Selena in the back as she was leaving the motel room. Her story, however, would change once again when she was put on trial. Her defense attorneys would try and make a case for accidental shooting. They would say that her confession had been coerced and that she had repeatedly told them during the standoff and afterwards during her interview that it was an accident, but that part had not been added to her signed confession. They would also say in their opening statements that Yolanda had been driven to carrying a gun because she was afraid of Selena's father. They'd say that Abraham had threatened her, that he was a control freak who felt threatened by Yolanda's friendship with his daughter. But the prosecution countered with a preemptive strike, putting Abraham on the witness stand first. He was sympathetic as a father, obviously grieving for his murdered daughter. He also vehemently denied some of Yolanda's statements she had made about him during the nine-hour standoff, statements that had been recorded in their entirety. She had said that Abraham threatened her, that he went behind her back and told people, including Selena, that she was a lesbian, and even that he had raped her. The defense realized that trying to position Abraham as a villain would probably backfire with the jury and decided against this strategy. The defense tried to stick with the accidental shooting claim and the coerced confession. After hearing from motel guests and employees who witnessed Yolanda following after Selena with the gun still pointed in her direction and hearing her yell angrily, bitch, the jury didn't buy the accidental shooting theory. They also heard testimony about Yolanda purchasing the gun two days after she was first confronted by the family about the embezzled money. After meeting with Selena and believing she wouldn't be fired after all, she had returned the gun, only to repurchase it four days before her final confrontation with Selena. The jury was given the option of finding Yolanda guilty of first-degree murder or not guilty. After only two and a half hours of deliberation, they found her guilty of first-degree murder. She was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 30 years. After being transferred to the women's prison in Gatesville, Texas, she was repeatedly threatened by other inmates and was put in isolation for her own safety. She spends 23 hours a day alone in her cell. Her first eligibility for parole will be on March 30, 2025. One question most often asked about this tragedy is, who was Yolanda Saladavar, and how could this happen? Most can't understand how someone who professed to be her number one fan and biggest supporter could end up murdering someone she said she loved like a sister. Yolanda Saldivar was a 30-year-old nurse who still lived with her parents and had few friends when she met the Quintanilla family. She cared for terminally ill cancer patients, and often her patients were the only people she interacted with on a daily basis. When she was brought into the fold of Selena's family, she felt a sense of purpose and power, perhaps for the first time. She felt important and needed. In short, she made Selena her whole world. She quickly became jealous of anyone else Selena became close to. Selena had hired many of her friends to work in her boutiques, and one by one, Yolanda drove them away. She wanted to be Selena's best friend. Her identity was wrapped up in being important in Selena's world. But she was also greedy. She was making a good salary working for Selena, but she started stealing from the company. She began to feel entitled to have whatever she wanted. It made her feel special, and in some ways, she felt that everything was hers. This was why she was able to lie and tell Selena that the ring was a personal gift from her, not from the whole staff, and she didn't even feel guilty for having paid for it out of Selena's account. 
During the trial, it was discovered that Yolanda had also embezzled money from a previous employer. She paid the money back to the company, and the charges were dropped. It was also reported by a former roommate who had rented a room from Yolanda that she didn't just have pictures of Selena in her apartment, but that the walls of her home were covered with her images. She testified that Yolanda seemed obsessed with the singer, and creeped out, the roommate moved out of the apartment after only two weeks. During the trial, Yolanda's parents showed themselves to be devoted and loving towards their daughter. Her mother attended every day of the trial, often accompanied by Yolanda's father, and more than one of her six brothers and sisters, and countless nieces and nephews. It seemed like even though Yolanda received love and attention from her own family and from the Quintanillas, it was never enough for her. She wanted more and more, and when she was threatened with losing her friendship with Selena and her prominent position in the business, she snapped. She now hated Selena and wanted to punish her and take her away from everyone else who loved her. Selena's only mistake was being too trusting and too accommodating. She considered Yolanda a friend and tried to give her every benefit of the doubt, but finally had to accept the fact that Yolanda was not a good friend, but a user and a manipulator. Until almost the last moment of her life, she wanted to believe Yolanda, even taking her to the hospital after her false claims of rape. But she'd finally seen her for what she truly was, and her fatal mistake was turning her back on Yolanda, most likely never fathoming that she would actually shoot her until it was too late. Selena's passing sparked numerous vigils and memorials in her honor. Her funeral drew over 60,000 mourners. Her closed casket was on view with fans, showing up as early as 4 a.m. to pay their respects beginning at 9. A rumor began to spread that afternoon that the coffin was empty. To calm the crowds, the family made the decision to open the casket. Selena's body could be viewed wearing a purple outfit she'd worn to the 1994 Tejano Music Awards and clutching a single red rose. The last mourners filed past, and the coffin was closed at 10 p.m. Two weeks after her death, George W. Bush, governor of Texas at the time, declared her birthday, April 16th, Selena Day, in the state. The crossover album Selena had recorded right before her death, titled Dreaming of You, was released in July 1995. It sold 175,000 copies on the first day of its release. Selena became the third female artist to sell over 300,000 units in one week, after Janet Jackson and Mariah Carey. It debuted at number one on the U.S. Billboard chart, becoming the first album by a Latino artist to do so. Selena was honored with a museum and a life-size bronze statue in Corpus Christi, Texas, in 1997. The gun used to shoot Selena at first went missing. It was later found at the home of a court reporter. The family asked that the gun be dismantled. It was, and the pieces were thrown into the Corpus Christi Bay in 2002. In 1997, a film about the Tejano star, titled Selena, was released in theaters. Jennifer Lopez plays Selena, and Abraham was portrayed by Edward James Olmos. The film grossed over $35 million in the U.S. Selena's family and her former band, Los Dinos, held a tribute concert in 2005 on the 10th anniversary of her death. It was broadcast live on Univision and achieved a 35.9 household rating, becoming the highest-rated Spanish-language program in the history of American television. Soon after Selena's death, Abraham Quintanilla and his family started the Selena Foundation, a charitable organization 
which assists children in crisis. Abraham Quintanilla has appeared in numerous television specials about Selena. He continues to produce new acts in the music and film industries with his record company, Q Productions. Suzette took over the management of Selena's boutiques and Selena merchandising. She still works for Q Productions and is married and has one child. She recently ran the campaign for the Selena line of MAC Cosmetics. A.B., along with Chris Perez, his brother-in-law, and Selena's widower, started the group Cumbia All-Stars in 2006. They have become immensely popular in South America. A.B. has eight children and recently announced he was splitting up with his wife. Chris Perez, devastated over the loss of his wife, began using drugs and alcohol for a time after her death. He stayed close to the Quintanilla family. He met Vanessa Villanueva in San Antonio and married again in 2001. He had two children with her before they divorced in 2008. In 2011, he wrote a memoir about his time with Selena in a best-selling book titled To Selena with Love. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. This concludes our series, The Day the Music Died. But I'll be back next time with a brand new series, and I hope you'll join me then. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in iTunes, and don't forget to rate and review. And I want to say thank you to some of my most loyal listeners. I appreciate your comments and feedback. Maria Ortiz, Kelly Tudor, E.J. Hammond, Katie Stevenson on the Facebook page, and Mark Carr, Mr. Hyde, Rambling, and Mr. Shaw on Twitter. And big thanks to Ellie McLennan from the podcast Insight and Haley and Lindsay from the Curiosity Kills podcast. Until next time, be good to one another.